We are an expository preaching church. I say we're about 75% expository, okay? So as, uh, it, maybe I've never said that before, but I'm learning that as we go, like, because we'll, we'll be in Scripture. And, and that means is that, all, what expository means is that we just go right through the Bible verse by verse. So we'll say we're going to be in 2 Samuel this year, which is what we're in. And we're going to go verse by verse to tell you what God says. So that way it's not my opinion. It's not what I think. It's what God literally has said. And I'll give you the context. I'll give you kind of the meanings behind words and kind of what was happening in that day. And then the Lord's word can do in your heart whatever the Holy Spirit wants to do with it. It works way better that way than, like, than me getting up here and trying to piece together verses to back up my opinion, right? Like I, you know, that, so that can go okay at times, but it's, way, it's just way safer and probably more theologically sound to say, this is what the Bible says, do with it what you will, all right? <laughs> you know, and at that point, it's between you and the Holy Spirit. Uh, but about 75% of the time, that's what we're doing. Other times, like last week and the week before, we were in our Kingdom Builder series. So we, we stepped out of 2 Samuel, went into the Kingdom Builders to kind of say, hey, we've got a mission to do across, across the world with spreading the gospel. Here's how we're doing that. And then we'll have times like Christmas where we'll do Christmas, a Christmas series or something like that. But, but if you're new here, most of the time, like we will be in, like, in, a, in a passage of script or in, the, in a chapter somewhere working a our way through. So bring your Bibles, be ready to open up and dive in. So today we're going to be in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 2. So you can turn there, but as you're doing that, let me just pray that the Lord would open our hearts and, and uh, open our ears to receive from Him. Heavenly Father, thank you for being an amazing God. Thank you for being some, uh, a God who has given us f- a fulfilling life. You've called us out of death into uh, a resurrected life. And Lord, we ask that it would just be today that you would uh, just speak to us powerfully through your word. Open our hearts, open our ears to hear from you today and uh, do whatever you need to do in every single person here, God, so that we can grow deeper and closer in relationship with you. We love you. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray and everybody said, amen. Amen. All right, so 2 Samuel, we're in verse, chapter two, verse 12. We are now starting to see the house of David established. And I will say this is the good years for the house of David. Now, it doesn't mean there's not conflict and it doesn't mean there's not war. Just because it's good years doesn't mean that you're void of fighting. Like you will always be in a conflict. You'll always be in battle. You're never gonna get away from the battle you know, on, this, on this earth. So don't, don't look at conflict as a bad thing. Look at it as, as, a, as an opportunity for the next victory, right? And David is honoring God. He's recognized who God is and who he is within within the anointing that God has placed upon him. And he is now doing things that are setting him up for great success in the next few years. So these are the good years. Now, a little background, just so you know, David was anointed king when he was 15 years old. So if you go back to last year when we were in 1 Samuel, you remember the prophet Samuel came to to the house of Jesse. Jesse had eight sons and and he went through all seven. He was like, these are not the sons. I don't know, like, it's not this guy's going to be king. And then the, the oldest came out. And the Lord said, nope, not him. The next one came out. Nope, not him. All the way down to where Samuel said, you got any other sons? And Jesse was like, well, yeah, we got one more. But like, <laughs> you know, he's little. And he's out in the field tending the sheep. And Samuel, Samuel said, bring him. And the, when David walked in, the Lord said, this is the man that I'm going to anoint to be king. So that happened when he was 15 years old. Now, fast forward 15 years later, He's 30 years old, and that's where we pick up today. But then it won't be until another seven years of a civil war conflict that he will be 
installed by the people as king over all of Israel. He'll be the king of Judah now. He is the king of Judah at this point. But isn't it interesting that it took this long for God to actually bring to fruition what he said was going to happen back when he was just a teenager. Now, I do want to make a, I do want to make a point here. When that day happened with Samuel and he anointed David, who from that moment on did God say was king of Israel? David. When David was 16, in God's eyes, David was the rightful king of Israel. Isn't that interesting? Now, the world had not come into alignment with God's viewpoint yet, but the Lord said, that's fine. We'll get it there. We'll get it there. And I, to me, that's, that was convicting because how often do we take on the world's viewpoints instead of God's viewpoints? God says, nope, this is, the, this is reality over here. And we say, nope, this is the reality over here. I'll give you an example. One, one example, I hear this often. I say this sometimes. I have to catch myself. But we'll say uh, as Christians, we're sinners saved by grace. The only difference between us and the world is that we know that we need a Savior. Now, I want to ask, in God's, in God's world, in his viewpoint, in his reality, which is the one true reality, in his reality, are you a sinner? No, you're not. That doesn't mean that you're not, you don't make mistakes, but you are covered in the righteousness of his son Jesus who is perfect. When he looks at you, he sees no sin whatsoever. So stop calling yourself a sinner. Oh, but Pastor Micah, I make mistakes. I get that, I make mistakes too, but I'm not gonna take the identity on as a sinner. It's all about identity. You think this identity crisis in this culture that we live in right now is a coincidence? No, this is how the devil destroys people. He confuses their real identity. He confuses who God says they are in their mind. And then they walk into it and they, they say, well, I'm just this or I'm just that. And God said, that is not what, at all what I've spoken over you. So we have to start speaking truth, God's reality over ourselves. When David was 15 years old, from the moment he was anointed king, every, every aspect of David's mind should have been I am king over Israel because God said I am now. Now, that doesn't mean he, he's haughty. It doesn't mean he's prideful. It doesn't mean he's boasting it. And we even see David didn't do that. He went and served the guy sitting in the seat. How hard would that be? Full well knowing, hey, Saul, you're in my seat, but God has not removed you yet, so I'm just gonna wait. I'm gonna wait patiently. And in that, you know when David ran into battle with Goliath? I, I guarantee you what he was thinking. He was like, I can't die. I'm death proof because God has anointed me to be king over Israel and I have not sat in that seat yet. And if I die, that means God's word would never come true and God's word always comes to be. He, he, I don't think he had an ounce of fear in him because he knew what God had said. And yet sometimes we always be like, oh man, I don't know, Pastor Micah, God told me that he was gonna do this. And I said, well, just wait. Do you believe it? Start speaking it out. Start aligning with God's truth. Isaiah 40, uh, 31 is one of my favorite verses. It says this, those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. Now, I don't know if you've ever watched an eagle fly, but those things are majestic when they fly, right? I mean, they go high. And do you know when an eagle, when, when a storm comes, you know those are the points where the eagle can actually go at its highest because it will fly in to the middle of the storm and it'll just it won't even work. It won't even flap its wings. It just extends its wings and the, the storm raging will continue to push the eagle higher and higher and higher until it's over the entire storm. That's amazing. So when the Bible says you will have wings like eagles, what the Bible is saying is when those storms of life come, 
you're going to just open up your wings and you're going to soar over all those problems. That's how my children walk in their identity. They will run and they will not be weary. They will walk and not faint. So as we dive into where we are now in 2 Samuel, we are, so 15 years later, David is 30. He's run from Saul. Saul is now dead. We now see the house of, of Saul in the north and when the house of David in the south, we are in a civil war. And Ishbosheth is the son of Saul and he is king over the north. You'll see that he's not much of a strong leader at all. And then David is the house uh, is the king over the south, which is Judah, and he is reigning in, he, in Hebron. And so uh, it, a lot of what, uh, there's a lot of parallels between Israel and the United States. As we're going through like studying this, just watch how the U.S. has, has risen to great heights, but all the conflict we've gone through, it's almost kind of identical to what Israel had to do. It was a nation that said, God, we need you. If only, if it's, if it's not you, then we won't have anything. And God says, you know, you, he says, you know me, I'm going to bless you. And he, and when God pours his blessings out on anything or anyone, it prospers greatly. And Israel was the same way. Israel said, you are our God. We are your people. If it's not for you, we will have nothing. But if we have you, we have everything and God bless them. But now here we are in a divided nation, North and South, just like what we've seen in the United States. The only difference I would say is it's flipped. In, in our history, the North were the good guys and the South were the bad guys, right? But here it's, the, it's opposite. North, North is the bad guys and the South, it's the good guys. It's the anointing of God. But you're gonna see it's brothers fighting brothers. And today that will become very apparent. Ishboseth had a commander in chief and his name was Abner, okay? So Abner's on the bad side, okay? But he's a strong warrior, he's a mighty mighty leader uh, within the house of Saul. He was one of Saul's loyal companions and, and leaders. David's commander-in-chief was a man named Joab. Okay, so now we're just laying the stage here. David and Joab, Ishbosheth and Abner. Okay, house of Saul, house of David. Okay, so picking up in verse 12 in chapter 2, Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim. Okay, now just so you know, and that's from Gibeon, but just so you know, when we say these names, like most of the time, I think most of the pastors at Life Church are fairly good at getting the pronunciations right. But we, we're not perfect, okay? So if you're ever like, Pastor Micah, that is not how you pronounce that in Hebrew. You can come to me and tell me that. You're not going to hurt my feelings because I'm learning how to say these things just as much as you are. And I don't get it right. I was out in California uh, last year for a Turning Point event with Charlie Kirk, and I was speaking and and I was getting ready to interview these ladies from California on stage, and we were backstage, and they, they, they're doing some great stuff fighting for parental rights in the schools and everything. And, and one lady, she has a newspaper that she started, and she's an author. And, and so I said, oh, okay, so like I'm reading your bio here. It says you're from the Conjo uh, Valley. Oh, that's cool. Where is that? And she's like, um, that's the Conejo Valley. <laughs> I was like, oh, oh, hey, I'm just from Indiana, you know. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, I just, I just said Conjo, so I just said it as it's written. Okay, yeah, Conejo. All right. Wonderful. <laughs> so I get my pronunciations wrong occasionally. You're not going to hurt my feelings if you come up and say, you did not say that right. But Mahanaim, Mahanaim, Im, Mahanaim. There we go. Thank you. All right. To Gibeon. Okay, we got, got that one out of the way. I only have to say it one more time, this whole, this whole message. All right. 
And Joab, the son of Zariah, and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. So here we go. We've got the armies coming out. They come to this pool and they basically sit down on the e either side of this pool. And Abner said to Joab, let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, all right, let's go. All right. Actually, that was my translation. He said, let them arise. Okay, but he was like, bring it on. All right, that's, that's what it is. Now, a little bit of uh, geographical context here. So we have uh, the Pool of Gideon here. Obviously, you see the north, all right? This is where Ishbosheth in the house of Saul is at. Down here in Judah is where the house of David is at. They're in Hebron. That's their capital. Now, they've all met at this place called the Pool of Gibeon. It looks like this. It's just a cistern in the, in the ground, and there was water that would fill up there for agricultural purposes. And so they come, and they've got on both sides of the pool are the armies, okay? And essentially what it was, it was a 12 v 12 competition. Whoever wins, winner take all. It's kind of like what happened with Goliath and David. This, this was not uh, uncommon in those days when, when armies would go to battle. They'd say, send out your best warrior or your best few warriors. And whoever wins, we all agree that if they win, then, then we'll honor how that, that battle goes. And the winner will take all and the loser will go home and defeat. And so that's what Abner was saying to Joab. He said, let's settle it kind of the way that we, we settle scores sometimes. Send out your best 12 fighters. And Joab said, okay. Now, I don't know. I think in the world of politics today, I think it'd be kind of fun to see that happen, right? <laughs> Actually, wait, not for America right now. Okay, but like, you know, if like, send your best politicians out. I think we'd all be like, absolutely. All right. <laughs> it's like, you know, all right, politicians, you have to go to Ukraine and actually do the, do the job. I don't think we'd actually be in war right now with, you, with, any, with anybody, right? They'd be like, I don't want to go, right? But that's what would happen. And I do think in some context, that's actually not a bad way to do it because, because you're, you're basically saying, hey, we believe in the, the leadership of our nation, right? You don't want your, your a leader's not going to put himself hopefully in a place where he doesn't, where he feels like he's not going to win, He's going to train for battle. He's going to go into battle with the heart to win. And, and you're going to follow your leaders in the battle. So often now in our culture, we, we have leaders, but the leaders are sitting way, way back in a safe ivory tower somewhere. And they send the young men out who are just trying to follow orders. And those are the ones that end up having to deal with the bloody conflict. But that's kind of what ancient battles look like back in the days of Israel. It's about 830 BC, just so you have some, some context there. All right, so verse 15. Then they arose and passed over by, num by number, 12 for Benjamin of, and Ishbosheth, and the son of Saul, and 12 of the servants of David. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword into his opponent's side. So they all died together. Okay, so it's kind of like, oh, well, that didn't work, right? Okay, so, and therefore the place was called Helkath at Hazurium, which is at Gibeon, Gibeon. And the battle was very fierce that day. So now we see that they, they, the 12 all died. So the 24 guys died together. So then the armies run and attack each other. And then the battle became very fierce. And Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. So, so neither side won in that first 24, uh, no, 12 v 12. They all died. But then Abner's men were defeated by Joab and his men after they all said, okay, well, that didn't work, so we're all going to have to fight now. And then verse 18, and the three sons of Zariah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Azael. Now, Azael was a swift, 
foot was as swift of foot as a wild gazelle. So let me give you a little bit of like context here. Who was this woman named Zariah? She was David's sister. All right, the Bible mentions her 26 times, but she's always alone. She doesn't, she, we don't know who her, her husband was. Um, she was raised, she raised three fierce warrior sons. That's pretty cool. Like, I mean, just being known as Zariah in scripture, wow, you're the mother of Joab, Abishai, and Azael. These guys were like, these guys were David's mighty men. How many parents would love to have sons, you know, that, that have that reputation? Wow, or daughters even, like warriors in the kingdom of heaven, right? How, wouldn't you want that for your kids? So Zariah really has a, has a place of honor within scripture. Now the book of Josephus does mention a husband and, and calls him by name, but we don't always take Josephus' gospel truth because it's not part of the gospel. Josephus was just a, a Jewish historian. But he also does add, I was reading through Josephus along with this text, and he does say that uh, Azael was faster than a horse. Now, that's pretty fast. I don't know if that's, you know, tongue-in-cheek. I don't know if he's kind of, if that's an expression of speech. Uh, but all that to say, the Bible says he was as swift of foot as a gazelle, and Josephus says he was, as, he was faster than a horse. This guy could move, okay? That's, that's the point right here. So Azael pursues Abner. So Abner's gone. He gets beat at this pool of Gibeon. And now Azael thinks to himself, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go after Abner. I want to show what I'm made of. I'm going to go after their commander in chief. And as he ran, he did not turn from the right hand or to the left hand following, following Abner. He was locked in, did not even just followed him, you know, right where he went, uh, at, right where Abner went, Azael went. Then Abner looked behind him and he said, are you Azael? He probably could recognize, okay, we know there's a fast kid over in the camp of David and Joab, this has got to be Azael because of how fast he is and he's keeping up with me. And he answered, Azael answered, and he said, I am. And Abner said to him, turn aside to your right or your left and seize one of the young men and take his armor. But Azael would not turn aside from following him. So one of the things too, you got to keep in mind is this is, well, I'll come back to this, but there's great, there's, there's, there's great glory when you kill the general and take his armor. And Abner said again to Azael, turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then should I be able to face Joab, your brother? Okay, so like I said, the, there's great, it's a great trophy to take the general and, his, and his, uh, to kill the general and take his armor. We see that with the battle of David and Goliath. When David killed Goliath, what did he do? He took Goliath's armor and he took it with him as he went. He had the sword of Goliath. He had the armor, the helmet of Goliath. And what that was saying is, hey, I'm the one who killed your leader, right? It, w- it really was a trophy. But what Abner's point is, Abner's saying, Azael, we're all brothers in this, okay? We come from Abraham. It's not like you're a, Philist- you're a Philistine and I'm an Israelite. We're all Israelites here. I don't want to kill you. You're, you think you're, uh, you're able to beat me? You're, I think you're too big for your britches there, boy. And if you don't turn away, I'm gonna have to kill you, but I know what's gonna happen. That's gonna lead to a blood feud that will last for generations, that will last for years. And I don't, I don't want that to be the case. Now in America's history, what's the greatest blood feud that we've ever seen uh, in, our, in our context? You guys know? Hatfield and the McCoys, right? You had two families, right? Both, both American families, West Virginia and Kentucky. And they were... And they, were, they would one-up each other. They would, like, one person would say something that offended another person in, in the other family. And then that family would avenge what that person said, and that would lead to a beating. 
And then that beating would lead to a killing. And then that killing would lead to multiple killings. And the multiple killings led to, no joke, the attorney generals of both states got into a feud themselves. It drugged the whole nation into a battle. And what Abner is saying, he's saying, I know what blood feuds can do to a nation. And I don't want that to be the case. I know we're at war, but we are still brothers here. So leave me alone or else you're gonna get your butt kicked. And it's not gonna be me who's gonna be held accountable for that. It's gonna be you because I warned you. Verse 23, but Azael refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear so that the spear came out his back. Yeesh. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Yeah, that's just like, the, okay, Lord, that's a little graphic. Like, you could just say killed him with a spear, right? Literally just, goosh, right through his stomach, came out his back, and Azael fell and, uh, and died right where he was. Again, Azael thought he could take on the leader of Saul's house. Probably a little bit of pride, probably a little cocky, and he learned the hard way. And all who came to the place where Azael had fallen and died stood still. They would come to this place and they'd say, this is where it all started. This is where the blood feud began. Now we also too, in American history, have something like that. In battles of uh, Lexington and Concord, there's uh, a saying, there's, uh, there's a bridge that you come, you come across in between those two cities and the bridge is where the shot heard around the world happened. And it was a, it was a moment in time that sparked a great battle. In our history, it was between the British and the, the, uh, the colonists. But in this, they would, came to, they would come to that same spot in the Israelite history and they'd say, this is where that blood feud really took off. And so they stood still when they came to the place Azael had fallen. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. And as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Ammah, which lies before Gia and the way, on the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group and took their stand on the top of the hill. Then Abner called to Joab, shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know what the end will, that the end will be bitter? He's basically saying, all right, Joab, I tried to warn your little brother. He did not go away. And if you wanna do this, this is going to be bitter for all of us. Now, I think Abner is also recognizing that the house of David is much stronger than the house of Saul. But he's saying, this is not gonna end well for anyone. Do you really want this? And he says, how long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of, the bro of their brothers? Basically saying, you could kill me, you could kill the men here, but you're still going to be pursuing their brothers even after we're gone. How long are you willing to fight? And it gets to Joab, and Joab begins to think about it. And in verse 27, he says this, as God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would not have given up their pursuit of their brothers until the morning. He says, we weren't gonna, we weren't gonna let up until we killed you. But you're right. At some point, we've gotta, we've, we've gotta stop this fighting. And so Joab blew the trumpet and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no, no more, nor did they fight anymore. And Abner and his men went all that night through the Arabah and uh, they crossed the Jordan and marching the whole morning, they came to Mahanaim. Ah, oh, yeah, did it. <laughs> Sweet. Yeah, <laughs> you know why it's highlighted? 
because it was like, I got to get this, okay? It has no purpose for you guys whatsoever, okay? I just, it was for my purpose. I highlighted it because Mahanaim, Mahanaim, Mahanaim. I, I was doing that all, all yesterday, right? All right, all right, squirrel. Okay, uh, <laughs> verse 30, Joab returned from the pursuit of Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, they were missing from David's servants, 19 men besides Asael. So they lost, they lost 20 guys in David's army that day, and that's including the 12 who fell at the pool of, of Gibeon right there, okay? So actually, they you know, as far as a battle goes, they actually didn't, they didn't lose too many men, so 20 in all. But the servants of David struck down of Benjamin 360 of Abner's men. So Abner and the house of Saul took a big-time butt-kicking at that pool on that day. And, and I think Abner's starting to realize uh, we're not, we're not going to beat the house of David. And he's recognizing, we're going to see next week and there's some weeks to come, how weak Ishbosheth really is as a leader. I don't even think Ishbosheth really wanted to be king, just as you study the, his life. It does not, I mean, he is a weak, weak leader. And then they took Azael and they buried him in the tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem. And Joab and his men marched all night and the day broke upon them at Hebron. So, so, so this leads to this battle right here basically kicks off a seven year, uh, seven and a half year civil war between the two houses, between the north and the south. Now, I would be remiss, we're not, we're not technically getting into verse one of chapter three, but I think verse one of chapter three sort of puts a sort of a cap on this part of the scripture. So I'm going to hit it this week as well, as we'll talk about it next week just a little bit. But verse one of chapter three says this there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. I think that sums it up right there. The house of, the house of Saul was declining in its authority and power, and that while the house of David was rising in great stature, great power, great authority. And I think what the author is doing in this passage of Scripture He's highlighting a couple things about who David was, a couple things about the anointing of God being on David and David's house, but he's also showing you a pattern right now. He's saying David rose to power in the south, pretty much the same way David's gonna come to power in the, in the north and take the whole kingdom. It's a pattern in David's reign. And now we don't know who the authors of 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Samuel are. We, we believe that maybe Samuel had some aspect in it. There's that, there's that assumption. But at this point, Samuel's dead. He's not around anymore. Remember, he died before even Saul died and prophesied even after death that Saul was going to, uh, to die that day when Saul summoned, summoned him through the witch of Endor. Remember that story? And Samuel was ticked. He was like, you totally jacked this up, Saul. And today you're gonna die. And the next day you'll be dead. And that's what, and that's what happened. Um, but Samuel has been dead long. You know, he's, it's been a while now since Samuel passed away. There's also the prophet Gad that many people think could have had an at, a hand in writing. Uh, 2 Samuel. And then you have the prophet Nathan, who we're going to start to see here um, in great detail, could have also written that. So there's those, those are the three kind of people we think wrote the book of Samuel, First uh, and Second Samuel. Or it could have been none of those, or it could have been all of them to some, to some extent. So, but whoever is writing this is showing us this pattern, and here's the pattern. First, the rebel comes with news of death. Okay, remember, the Amalekite came and said, hey, Saul's dead. I know because I killed him. Right, which would, which would have, that established that established the road for David to walk into kingship. 
But then the messenger is executed. Remember, David said, how dare you raise your hand against God's anointed? And he killed the Amalekite. Now, we, the Amalekite was lying, but still, he was trying to take credit for the death of Saul to get into a good favor with David. But he didn't know the heart of David because this Amalekite didn't know the heart of God. And David said, you will not get out of here before I kill you. And he had him executed because he, laid, he, laid, he, he said he killed Saul, which was God's anointed. And then David laments over the death of Saul. Okay, so we've seen all that. Well, this is exactly what's going to happen when, Saul, or when David comes to power over all of Israel. There's gonna be a death of a leader, the messenger's gonna get executed, and David's gonna lament. And I think David, what you're realizing is David has that heart of God because God's will is that none should go through this. Nobody should perish in God's heart. He, the Bible says it's his will, God's will, that none should perish. But yet people die and go to hell every single day. And it breaks the heart of God. And I think what David is doing here, is, this is breaking his heart that our brothers, people that really should be in alignment together, that should love each other, are dying. We're fighting each other in a, in a needless war that doesn't need to happen. If we would all just follow and honor God, this would be so much better for everybody. And I think David's recognizing that Abner and Ishbosheth and the men of Saul's house have families too. They have sons, they have daughters, they have wives. And he doesn't want that because he has a heart of God and God doesn't want that. But yet in a fallen world, sometimes that's what happens. And it breaks God's heart as it broke David's heart. So as we wrap up here, and I'm gonna call the worship team back up, as we wrap, wrap up, just to give you kind of a, a little bit of a jumping off point as we dive into the next few weeks, these are the good years for David. Remember, 2 Samuel really is, it's the, uh, and it really is 1 Samuel too, but it's, it's the rise, the triumphs of David, that, and then we have, the, we have the sin of David, and then we have the troubles of David, okay? The transgressions of David that lead to the troubles. So you have the triumphs of David, the transgressions of David, and then the troubles of David. And right now we are in the triumph stage, these are the good years. The house of David is now becoming firmly rooted from this moment on. And I don't mean just in ancient history. I mean from this moment on until all of eternity. We will be talking about the house of David when we are surrounded by the throne or, surrounded in, or surrounding the throne of God, giving God praise for who he is because Jesus came from the lineage of David, from the house of David. Now, for many years, archaeologists, they did not, they, they thought the Bible was just kind of made up. And one of the big reasons they would use for this was because nowhere in modern archeological finds have we ever found anything that mentioned the house of David. And they would say, if this house of David was so important and critical to the, 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 the story of Jesus, you would think we would find writings, we'd find coins and things of the house of David. And there was nothing until 1993. 1993 in the northern part of Israel in a place called Tel Dan. And you'll see in scripture, it'll say from Dan to Beersheba. Dan is the northern part of Israel. Beersheba is the southern part of Israel. That's basically saying all of Israel from Dan to Beersheba. But in Dan, in 1993, there was an archeologist that was there and they, they found, um, they saw this wall. And on this wall, there was a pictograph and they kind of brushed some dirt and dust away from it. It was very old. It dated back to about 830 BC, which is right about the time here. And it, it was a Syrian king who was mentioning a battle against the house of David. 
And that moment was so huge because archeologists would always point to, there was no mention of the house of David anywhere in archeological finds until that moment. And now they have to, they have to recognize that there really was a house of David. Now, now they have to find something else to try to discredit the Bible with, right? And we know it's true, we believe it. Even if we, that find wasn't there, we still would believe it, all right? But it just points to that this is true. This history is accurate. You, if it's in the Bible, you can take it to the bank that it actually happened. And it's not metaphorical. It's not a, uh, you know, this, 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 these are real events that occurred with real people. But this moment on became the time where the house of David really was firmly rooted for all of eternity. Pretty cool thought. That was the moment that we'll be talking about for generations and generations to come, the house of David. As a summary, we have Abner as the aggressor, Joab goes out to meet him. The battle was begun by Abner's challenge. Abner and his forces are defeated. Azael is Joab's little brother. And Abner didn't want to kill Azael, but he did. Which then sparked a seven-year long war, according to scripture, a civil war. And the house of David grew stronger and the house of Saul grew weaker. Abner grew stronger in the house of Saul, which is something interesting that we'll look at here. And Abner, even in his moments right now, he's starting to realize there's something different about the house of David. And I'm gonna tell you what that something different was. It's very clear, it's very easy for us to see. The difference that the house of David had over the house of Saul was the anointing of God upon it. If you've ever struggled with success, with like if you always feel like you're failing, if you always feel like the devil is constantly getting an upper hand and, and you tend to feel like I'm getting weaker and weaker and the world's getting stronger and stronger, my question to you is, have you ever walked in the anointing that God is calling you to? God wants to anoint you. He wants to have his hand of blessing on you. But sometimes we reject that and go a different way. And we say, you know what? I don't wanna give God everything. I wanna kind of keep some things for myself. Well, in that moment, we raise ourselves up to sit on the throne and self gets stronger. So the question that I would ask, if you're struggling with failures and defeat and you don't feel like anything you can do can get you across that finish line, maybe you're feeling like Abner. And Abner, you know, he's a strong, he's a strong warrior. He served Saul faithfully. He probably thought he was on the side of God. And honestly, probably early on he was. And yet here he is constantly seeing failure in front of him everywhere he goes now. And I think what he's starting to recognize, and you'll see this, is that David's got God. How are we going to ever come against that? But the thing is, I believe God was probably calling Abner over to that side. I believe God was calling all of Israel over to that, say, hey, just come in the line with David and you will be blessed too. But yet the pride of Abner, the pride of Ishbosheth, the pride of Saul said, no, we're gonna do it the way we want to. And they've made themselves king. So the question that I would leave with you today is King Self getting weaker while King Jesus is getting stronger in your life? Or is it the opposite? That's really what it comes down to. This whole passage in 2 Samuel, to me, just it stood out as a, as a reminder. It's like, Lord, I gotta have your anointing. If I don't have you, I have nothing. But if I have you, I have everything. If I don't have you, I'm gonna hit failure after failure after failure, even if I'm doing good things. But if I have you, even when the enemy comes against me and tries to take me out at the knees, you're gonna give me wings like eagle. I'm gonna soar into victory. If that's you today, I'm saying walk in victory. God is calling you to be victorious. 
He wants you to be fruitful and successful and prosperous, but you've got to be in the house of David. You've got to be in the house of our Father. You've got to have the anointing. And as we go into this next song, I'm going to invite the prayer team down, and maybe you just want to come down and, and be prayed over to say, hey, I've been putting self first. I need prayer that I would put Jesus first. Or maybe you're feeling like the enemy's weapons are, are certainly prospering. You're saying, I need defense. I need the anointing of God to cover and defend me and my house. But I want what David had. I want to walk in the battles full well knowing that I'm death proof because my God has spoken. That's the life of a child of God. That's the life of a warrior. And that's what we're doing here at Life Church is we're saying walk powerfully and in an anointing because our God, our Father has spoken.